Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This was not Facebook's best week. I'd say it was better than when they facilitated a genocide in Myanmar, except that from their perspective, it's probably much worse. On Sunday night, former Facebook employee Frances Haugen was featured on 60 Minutes, laying out the story behind a tranche of documents she had provided to the Wall Street Journal for an explosive series of stories that had run on the company. There were conflicts of interest between what was good for the public and what was good for Facebook. And Facebook over and over again chose to optimize for its own interests, like making more money. The version of Facebook that exists today is tearing our societies apart and causing ethnic violence around the world. Then on Monday, Facebook went down across the world. And because it had been scooping up other companies along the way to its domination, it took Messenger, WhatsApp, and Instagram down with it. Facebook says a faulty update sent to its servers caused yesterday's huge outage. Facebook has since apologized for the issue and said no user data was compromised. On Tuesday, Haugen appeared before the Senate Commerce Committee. She told the Senate that Facebook knew its algorithm was producing toxic interactions, but pushed ahead anyway and knew it wasn't reaching as many people as it claimed to advertisers that it was. Facebook understands that if they want to continue to grow, they have to find new users. They have to make sure that that the next generation is just as engaged with Instagram as the current one. And the way they'll do that is by making sure that children establish habits before they have good self-regulation. By hooking kids. By hooking kids. Then on Wednesday, attorney Jonathan Cantor appeared before the Senate Judiciary Committee for a confirmation hearing. He's been nominated to be Assistant Attorney General for the Antitrust Division at the Department of Justice. Facebook desperately did not want him to be nominated, and now they very much do not want him to be confirmed. NetChoice, a lobby group funded by Facebook, Amazon, and Google, sent around talking points it hoped would appeal to Republicans, arguing that Cantor is, quote, a progressive advocate, not an impartial enforcer, and that he's in the pocket of companies like Yelp and Match that have battled big tech in court and used Cantor as their attorney. The group also warned that Cantor, quote, opposes the broad bipartisan and objective consumer welfare standard. So for a deeper look at the consumer welfare standard, I'd recommend going back and checking out our episode with antitrust expert Zephyr Teachout from July, who also spoke at length then about Cantor just before he was nominated. But briefly, the consumer welfare standard was developed by conservative legal scholar Robert Bork, who was famously blocked from the Supreme Court by Democrats during the Reagan years. His idea was essentially that judges looking to interpret antitrust law should only look at whether a company's market power was causing a bad outcome for consumers. If prices were low and quality was good, then there was no reason to enforce antitrust law, went Bork's reasoning. And judges and regulators have followed that since, with the result being an era of endless and ever-larger corporate mergers. Cantor, along with Lena Khan, is on the forefront of the anti-monopoly push. And it's truly stunning to companies like Facebook, and in a way, it's stunning to me, that people like Khan and Cantor are on their way to be in positions of real power where they can put their antitrust ideas into practice. Khan is now chair of the Federal Trade Commission and got 21 Republican votes on the floor of the Senate. Ted Cruz, whose biggest issue is censorship of conservatives by big tech, spoke favorably about her but ultimately voted no. I asked him how he was feeling about Cantor, and he said he had recently met with him. Senator Cruz, have you, have you talked with Jonathan Cantor yet? Have you decided, on Assistant Attorney General for Antitrust, have you made a decision on I his... talked to him this morning, had a good, good conversation with him. Um, I, I'll continue to evaluate the, the nomination on the merits. He certainly seems smart and knowledgeable. Mm-hmm. You were encouraged by the conversation? Is that a fair uh, assessment? We spent a lot of time talking about big tech uh, and what he expressed in the meeting, um, I thought was encouraging on that front of a willingness to enforce the antitrust laws uh, against the rampant abuses of big tech. Cruz didn't make it to Cantor's hearing, but the hearing went extremely well for Cantor. 
Iowa Republican Chuck Grassley began it by making clear he saw Cantor as an ally. Mr. Cantor and I met last week, and we had a very good discussion about my concerns about concentration and consolidation in the agricultural industry. Others spoke warmly to him. Senator Tom Tillis, a Republican from North Carolina who voted against Lena Kahn, said he'd be supporting Cantor. I intend to support your nomination. I should say that up front. I don't know if my staff know that, but you do. What comes next will be a Herculean battle between the DOJ and FTC on the one hand and the forces of corporate concentration on the other. In the hearing, Amy Klobuchar raised the prospect of increasing funding for Cantor's antitrust division, and Cantor said he was all for it. He'll need every penny for the fight ahead. To talk about Facebook's terrible week, Cantor's confirmation hearing, and what comes next, I'm joined now by Rachel Bovard and Matt Stoller. Rachel is the author, with former Senator Jim DeMint, of the book Conservative, Knowing What to Keep. She's senior director of policy at the Conservative Partnership Institute and previously worked as an aide in both the House and the Senate until Mitch McConnell got her tossed out. No, really, Google it. It's quite a story. Lately, she's been co-hosting Hill TV's politics morning show, Rising, with me. Matt Stoller has also worked as an aide in both the House and Senate, but on the Democratic side. He's the author of the book Goliath, The 100-Year War Between Monopoly Power and Democracy, and is director of research at the American Economic Liberties Project. Rachel and Matt, welcome to Deconstructed. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. And so we're recording this on Wednesday afternoon, and the the Jonathan Cantor confirmation hearing just wrapped, but we're also in the middle of of quite a week for, for Facebook. So off the top of that, Rachel, let me ask you about how the kind of how the conservative antitrust folks and the conservative movement more broadly has been receiving these new revelations from the Facebook whistleblower and what you think the most important of those revelations has been. So I think there is a little bit of suspicion on the right about Frances Haugen, how she sort of magically appeared, very sort of groomed and flashy with, you know, a 60 Minutes interview and then immediately followed by a Senate hearing. And people on the right have sort of unpacked her Democratic contribution history and said, oh, look, she's working with, you know, Jen Psaki's PR firm. How can we trust this person? You know, the general paranoia on the right that everything's an op. And that may all be true. And I think her answers at the the hearing that she had yesterday were not comforting, I think, to a lot of us on the right who want to take a more free market approach to solving the tech problem. You know, she, she very much said she doesn't want to break up Facebook. She'd prefer a regulatory agency to sort of manage, quote unquote, misinformation on the platform. And that, I think, concerns some of us. But from where I sit, Frances Haugen, as much as she may want to be the protagonist of this story, is not. The documents that she released are. And so I think it would be a mistake for people on the right, you know, simply because they've discredited the messenger to discredit the underlying documents that she's produced. Because those documents are fairly explosive. I mean, they tell us a lot. They confirm a lot of what we know or what we suspected, right? We know, for instance, that social media, particularly Instagram, has very negative effects on the mental health of teenage girls. Now we know from these documents that Facebook knows it too and continues its push to get kids on their platform. You know, we know, or we suspected anyway, that Facebook may have been misleading its advertisers and investors about the reach of its ad platform. And she brought that information to the SEC. And so I I just think there's a lot in there to pay attention to, a lot of, of damning evidence that, you know, Facebook is not being upfront about things and the harm and the reach of that harm that can follow. So I, I think... That should be the focus here in the continued effort to address the big tech companies, not Frances Haugen herself. And Matt, what did you think was the most consequential thing that came out of the documents that she leaked? I think it's the misrepresenting of advertising reach to advertisers and investors. So she submitted a document to the Securities and Exchange Commission that said that Facebook was lying or actively deceiving investors and advertisers about how many people that they could reach. And, you know, this is something that we pretty much guessed. I mean, Facebook on public marketing documents said that they reached more teenagers in the United States than there are teenagers in the United States. <laughs> Not like this stuff isn't known, but the fact that it's, you know, there are documents seems to have some sort of impact on people. Although I will say this, it's hard for me to evaluate because as somebody who's paid attention to Facebook for quite a while and said, hey, this is a problem. It's pretty irritating that we have to listen that like, that it's a big deal that Facebook has internal documents showing that Instagram makes teenage girls insecure. 
because it's like, I'm sorry, but have you ever used Instagram? (laughs) Have you ever, you know, talked to a teenage girl? Like this is, you know, like Instagram makes me insecure, right? Like this is that's the goal of Instagram is to make you feel like you're missing out on something. So it's, it's just kind of like, it's really, I find it irritating that stuff is not real until kind of a certain cadre of person has thought it or stated it. And when stuff like we know this is all obvious to anybody who pays any attention to any of this and has been for years. So it's like, it's hard for me to evaluate because I'm sort of trying to predict how policy insiders will learn. And if I can't, it's hard for me to imagine people who don't, who <laughs> who've never talked to a teenage girl and who don't know that Instagram makes you insecure. I like, it's, I just, I don't know. Will they now be convinced of that? So, you know, I guess that's kind of why I'm having trouble like processing it. It seems like it's a big deal though. And what, what could be the consequences of the alleged fraud around the, the advertising numbers? This is very reminiscent of the way that Facebook actively destroyed digital media several years ago by encouraging all of these news outlets, including the one that I used to work for, Huffington Post, to pivot to video. And they paid these outlets to produce video. They then lied to them about how many people were watching the videos, which then you know, gave sugar highs to all of the editors at all of these digital publications and said, well, we need to lay off all of our reporters and just invest in producing more of these videos that Facebook will then tell us are getting 250,000 views. And I could tell right away that this live stream of me like talking about what I had had for lunch, there were not 80,000 people watching that. Like there was just, it was just impossible. Yet those were the numbers that Facebook was, was reporting to outlets. Were there ever any consequences for that? And what could happen now that the climate's a little bit different? Yeah. Just so you know, Ryan, that, that video stream of you eating lunch, that was me watching it 80,000 times. 80,000 <laughs> yeah. times. I just love it. With your, with your 80,000 alts. Yeah, exactly. I just love it. I love watching you eat lunch. It's, it, that's weird. Um, <laughs> Do you guys need a minute? Do you miss about? <laughs> uh, yeah. So the pivot to video. Oh, <laughs> we might. oh, and we'll move away from the weird, creepy <laughs> commentary from Matt Stoller. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there was like a settlement, you know, he, he was he was sued for that. And there was or Facebook was sued for that. And there was a settlement. But, you know, broadly speaking, we know of multiple examples of criminal behavior. And, and it was a civil settlement. But what he did was fraud. He stole money. Right. That's what Facebook did. And they, this is not the first time they've done it. I think they've lied to advertisers or publishing partners three times with meaningful monetary consequences, which is fraud stealing. It's not the only time that we've seen potential criminal activity. Another example would be that there is a suit against Google in Texas, which alleges price fixing between Facebook and Google over ad markets. Price fixing is per se illegal. And again, it's a criminal violation of the Sherman Act. Another example, I'm not saying that they, these are all alleged, right? So right. maybe maybe they have good defenses. They're, they're just, no one's bringing charges against them. But the, you know, the other one is this last week or two weeks ago, a series of pension funds brought a case against Facebook over Cambridge Analytica. And what they alleged with, with I think some pretty good evidence is that Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg and a few others were engaged in insider trading. So they knew that the Cambridge Analytica stuff was going to come out and they sold a, a bunch of stock. And it was the kind of thing where Zuckerberg was saying, you know, I'm, I'm really going to only sell a billion dollars of stock a year to finance my foundation. And then Cambridge Analytica came out and he sold $5 billion of stock, mm-hmm. right? And Sheryl Sandberg did the same thing. And so did a few other board members and early investors. So it's like, they're, that's illegal. I mean, I, I you know, I'll, the rule of law is kind of adorable these days when you're talking about elites. But, you know, there's, a, there's just a bunch of stuff that he's done that's that's criminal, right? And so in a functional society with the rule of law, you would see criminal charges brought against executives who do this, just like you would have seen criminal charges brought against people who caused the financial crisis through securities and, and, and bank fraud. You would have seen criminal charges against the Sackler family over opioids for illegal distribution of uh, narcotics. We have a problem with the rule of law and Facebook being able to kind of do whatever they want, make apologies, maybe pay a fine here or there, but you know, not actually holding the people who are responsible for engaged in what could be criminal activity for that criminal activity. It's a, it's a crisis of the rule of law, and that's really what we're dealing with. I think an element of this, too, is that 
you know, absent criminal charges, you know, what you get are sort of settlements and civil penalties and, you know, fines. And they do nothing, you know. And I think that that's something that we haven't – it goes to this idea that we actually need structural reform of these platforms. Because, I mean, you look back as recently as 2019 when the FTC slapped Facebook with a $5 billion fine. And it was like orders of magnitude larger than anything that the FTC had ever fined any company from before. And Facebook's like, yeah, okay, you know, cost of doing business, whatever. And their stock jumped. Their stock actually rose because it's not just Facebook that understands this reality that these are just speed bumps, you know, on the way to Facebook going about doing this business. It's the rest of the market that understands it too. And I think that is maybe one of the more compelling cases, I think, that there has to be structural reform because these platforms are largely ungovernable with the laws that we have now. You know, absent criminal charges for the people in charge, this is what you get and it means nothing to them. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. And so speaking of governing them, the the one person that these releases were quite well-timed for, I think, would be Jonathan Cantor, who's now going through the confirmation process, uh, you know, getting Facebook front and center in the days and week ahead of that hearing is probably pretty pretty helpful for him. But Rachel, who is Jonathan Cantor? Tell us a little bit about him. So Jonathan Cantor is is a seasoned antitrust attorney, has worked for a long time in the antitrust space, really representing sort of smaller firms, you know, although he did represent, I think, Microsoft as well, but going up against the big tech giants. And he really is one of the few antitrust attorneys in town, I think. Um, I don't know if Matt would agree with this, but that just really hasn't gotten sucked into the Borg of representing big tech. I mean, that's what most people do in the antitrust space these days. And he is viewed, I think, fairly I don't want to say favorably but with re- with a lot of respect from from the right generally because he is such a a, a good practitioner and his skill set is is really widely known in this space you know you saw people come out in support of his nomination all of I think it was all of the former people who had his job um the assistant attorney general at the Department of Justice have come out in support of him based on that fact based on the fact that he's a seasoned practitioner that he knows the law that he treats his co-counsels with respect you know that he's been in this space for a very long time so you know he's been nominated to take the position of, of assistant attorney general at Department of Justice responsible for antitrust formerly held by Macon Del Rahim in the Trump administration. And I think it's at a critical time. The Biden administration definitely took a while to fill this spot. And I think it was unclear who they'd pick. But I think Jonathan Cantor is probably the best person they could have put in that job in terms of um, support from from both sides of the aisle. And Matt, first, anything to add to that? And then what what was your reaction to the the hearing, which to me struck me as sort of a Jonathan Cantor love fest? Yeah, well, Rachel just said what I would have said, and now you just said about Cantor, and you just said what I would have said about the hearing. So <laughs> I have nothing to say. Uh, yeah, he, he didn't get any. He didn't get any really like tough questions. But what, what was interesting is that except like, sort of a back and forth with Mike Lee about consumer welfare standard, which is kind of a weird nerdy thing. Okay, let's talk about the consumer welfare standard for a moment. Uh, you, you've you've criticized the standard in the past. Yeah, can you un- can you unpack that a, a little bit? I thought that was one of the meatier parts of the, the hearing. Do you agree that the consumer welfare standard could encompass many factors beyond price, uh, factors that we both agree are important, including things like quality and innovation and consumer choice? Yeah, so the consumer welfare standard is a – basically what it means is to what extent – 
do you allow economists to control antitrust law? Originally with antitrust law so from the 1890s onward until the 1970s, if you showed a violation, you know, someone was exploiting their market power against someone else, it was illegal. And then Robert Bork, who was this antitrust attorney, invented this idea called the consumer welfare standard. And he said, well, actually, you should have to prove not only that somebody is exploiting their market power, or rather the way that you prove that someone is exploiting their market power is by showing through uh, the way that economists calculate models that it, it is creating inefficiency so that there, there would be more output if they hadn't done whatever they did. It seems like a technical small change, but what it effectively did is it moved questions of equity and justice and common sense out of the equation when you're thinking about competition, and it moved uh, competition law, antitrust law into the hands of economists who tend to be very favorable to monopoly power. It's really a debate over the role of, of economics versus a broader sense of how you conduct antitrust law. And Mike Lee, he's sort of carrying the flag of, of the consumer welfare standard, which is this weird status quo symbol. But he also, he's, he's kind of cross-pressured because he also thinks that big tech has gone too far. And so he's like, we need to really get aggressive against big tech. We really need a revolution in antitrust as long as everything stays the same. And he kind of put that out on Cantor, and they went back and forth on that question. Yeah, and and Rachel, as a kind of as a former Mike Lee staffer, you, maybe you could help explain where where he's coming from a little bit. It seemed like he's trying to say, okay, we, we clearly need to do more when it comes to antitrust, and the and the current standard doesn't allow us to do what we need to do. But maybe we don't need a new standard, but what we need is a different interpretation of that standard. Like in other words, that judges are too narrowly interpreting consumer welfare standard by referring only to prices. And that if you expand it out to other inefficiencies, then that could maybe do what needs to be done. Cantor seemed to agree. Do you think Cantor does actually agree with that or he was just being agreeable in his hearing? And what's, what's your take on whether the consumer welfare standard can be just kind of reinterpreted or whether it needs to be thrown out and, and redeveloped? So I do think, you know, based on the questions that Mike Lee asked, I mean, he he really does seem to want to push the competence of the consumer welfare standard beyond its current current sort of narrow focus exclusively on economics. I mean, you heard him ask specifically, is it more than price? Can it encompass consumer welfare, quality, all these other topics? You know, and Cantor agreed with him. And he has, I think Lee has said in other in other venues as well that the courts have become too tied to this idea of, of the speculative economics, right? You can now hire a, an expert, an economic expert, to spin these very complex econometric tales at, at a trial, and, and the judge is like, "Oh yes, that guy." And me, and meanwhile, you know, the the actual antitrust attorneys are like, "We have actual evidence. We have emails showing anti-competitive intent, right?" And you you just blew us off and, and went with the with the economics guy. Like, what the hell? That is true, and that has happened. You know, and I think Matt would probably agree with this. That you know, this has happened widely and broadly across the antitrust space. Perhaps most infamously, I think when the Obama administration whiffed on prosecuting Google, you had exactly this scenario. You had the economists making very speculative and hilariously wrong that now we know they were wrong claims. Well, the attorneys were like, "We have emails. Right. <laughs> we we can show that." They are our anti-competitive intent and potential practices here. So I do think that. Mike Lee would agree that the status quo in the interpretation of this is not correct. But I think if I'm reflecting how the right thinks about the consumer welfare standard, they think that anchoring antitrust enforcement in sort of the market realities in some sort of economic framework is correct because I think they fear this application of of values outside of this space. Like if, if antitrust isn't tethered to some sort of objective framework, then it becomes a tool to impose sort of social goals. And so really at the end of the day, I think for them, it's a question of are the political benefits in antitrust primary or secondary, right? Do you bring a case because of social harm or because of anti-competitive evidence? Um, and, and I think the right is more concerned that if you lose that framework, then it's just an untethered vessel for all kinds of, you know, what they call woke antitrust. So pursuing antitrust for claims of social justice, you know, all, all these things. And that's why I think they work very hard to preserve at least some kind of framework. Now, I have frankly been surprised to see Mike Lee move on this question. I think if you had asked Mike Lee five years ago about mergers and acquisitions, I don't think he would have met 
met, met a merger he didn't like, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> and now he is proposing legislation that does codify the consumer welfare standard, but also does make some tweaks to the existing way that antitrust is enforced, which, you know, to me is surprising. But he's not going to move, I think, on the issue of consumer welfare that far. Now, Jonathan Cantor himself, you know, I don't know what his personal views are on the consumer welfare standard, but at the moment, you know, he has to enforce the law as it's currently written and currently interpreted. So I think he can push the competence of the consumer welfare standard, but he won't, I think, at DOJ be able to overturn it completely. And Matt, what do you think of that that concern from the right that antitrust policy is going to be used to to try to do social policy as an end run around, I guess, doing social policy through Congress? Yeah, I mean, so I guess in 2018, when the Democrats put antitrust in one of their campaign provisions on taking back Congress. They said that certain social factors need to be embedded in how we do antitrust. And a couple of people have said that occasionally. So there is a fear, I think, that Democrats are trying to take this area of law and expand the way that they do uh, that they do antitrust. But if you actually pay attention to the people that are that are doing the work, right, which is the antitrust subcommittee and Lena Kahn and Jonathan Cantor and this this kind of movement that that's that's about five ten years old. It has nothing to do with embedding abstract social goals into antitrust. It's a much more I don't want to say technical because that's not quite right. It's a philosophical disagreement, but it's a philosophical disagreement about how to actually enforce competition. So the consumer welfare standard is output driven, right? So you look at prices. And pricing helps tell you whether there is efficiency or not. Mike Lee says, okay, well, let's also add on innovation and quality and a bunch of other stuff, right? So to expand, says, oh, actually, it's flexible. It slices and dices, dessert topping and floor cleaner, right? The Brandeisian view, which is kind of my faction, we don't think that you should just do output-based antitrust because fundamentally, you're just guessing, right? When somebody says, oh, yeah, there's three companies and two of them want to merge, but don't worry, prices will go down. You should let it through. Here's this economic model that says that. You're just guessing about the future. So you can stick other factors in there. You can say, oh, well, um, it'll be higher quality. And also there will be more innovation. You're all just guessing about a model. The Brandeisians, what we think is, look, you should just look at the competitive process itself. Are there enough competitors, (laughs) right? If there are three competitors, that's probably not enough. So you should not allow the merger. Can you count to you know, it's probably need at least five in every market. Can you count to five? There, that's the analysis that you need to do. So it's not about embedding other forms of law and social concern into antitrust. It's about bringing antitrust back to the original goal of decentralizing and deconcentrating economic concentrations of power. And I think that the right is, I think some people on the right are there. I think Senator Senator Josh Hawley has probably the most sophisticated view of antitrust of anyone in the Senate, with the exception of a few other senators. But he's, it's, that's where he is. Um, and there are some other members that kind of get that. But I think there's also a, you know, and I'm not saying this, Mike Lee, I think he, this is slightly different, but Jim Jordan on the House side, there are some conservatives who are exploiting this philosophical disagreement about whether economic concentrations of power are a problem. He's exploiting that to just retain the status quo, which is the consumer welfare standard. It's a way of basically protecting big tech without seeming like you're protecting big tech. Because you're saying, oh, well, well, I'm not saying that, that we need to protect Google. In fact, we should go after Google, but we do need to protect the laws that have protected Google because otherwise the boogeyman woke guy is going gonna, is gonna to get you. <laughs> and that's not what this is about. So I just read this, this long book with a bunch of agricultural economists who study the cattle industry and the beef supply chain. And if you know anything about ranchers, like they are super angry right now because beef prices are going up, but they're not getting paid more for their cattle. And it's a, it's a problem of consolidated meat packers. And it, they're just, they're in a rage. And like, it hasn't been this bad in, in 80 years. Bankruptcies, it's just a nightmare. And I read this book from a bunch of economists from Texas A&M and the, the USDA and whatnot. And they're all just like, they actually said, ranchers need to stop being so emotional. In fact, the whole system is working perfectly. I mean, that was the whole point of this. And so you have this weird, and like, it's not like ranchers are super woke, right? They are just like, we are getting screwed by the meat packers. So it's really a fight over, do you allow economists who are agents of monopoly to control policy, or do you actually do it based on evidence 
from uh, people in the marketplace. Hey, Rachel, is that why you saw Chuck Grassley saying such nice things to and about Cantor, the ag side monopoly problem? Yeah, I mean, I think I think this is something Chuck Grassley is actually concerned about, and I think you know he's also old school, right? I mean, literally old. He's eighty, <laughs> yes. right? Like and running for re-election. Yeah, and he's running for re-election, but he's also you know I think from the school of thought that like. He's he's fairly friendly to nominees regardless of where they come from because he thinks the president should be able to pick their own person. So I think he starts from that sort of bent already. You know, and you saw, I think, a nod from Senator Klobuchar to the work that they are doing, Grassley and Klobuchar together to address competition policy. And I think, you know, that's sort of where he's reflecting a little bit of, of where the middle of the mainstream Republican Party is on some of these questions, which is, you know, I think they've been very beholden to a specific view of the market for a very long time. But you do have some senators, I think, now that are saying all is not well in the world of American antitrust enforcement. You know, perhaps, you know, there's so much evidence at this point that's that the market is being distorted or at the very least, you know, that our laws and enforcement have not kept up with innovation in the tech space, that we need to take steps here. And, and that's why I think it is important to point out, you do have philosophical disagreements between, you know, elements of the right on this question. But it's significant to me that you have everyone from Mike Lee to Josh Hawley that's introduced antitrust legislation, right? Josh Hawley is sort of one end of the spectrum and Mike Lee is on the other. But you don't have a lot of people who are very substantive thinkers on this question on the right saying anymore that, you know, see no evil, hear no evil, there's nothing to do here. You you definitely do have people, I think, trying to answer this question. Now, I think, as Matt pointed out, you know, you always have people that <laughs> are trying to do something or, or, or hold something up that they're doing something under the guise of doing nothing. But I do think that you really do see some of the intellectual leaders in the Republican Party on this question really wrestling with with some of the underlying questions that people like Matt have been studying for a really long time. So is that is that the phase we're in now where there's no longer a, a serious argument about whether something needs to be done, but it's the side that used to say that nothing needs to be done is now kind of floating things that can't really be done and wouldn't work just as a way to, of delaying? Is, is that because there's there's kind of like a you know an, an evolution that these these debates go through in Washington? At some point, it becomes you know they're just a stalling tactic for the side that knows it's going to lose but wants to you know, I guess, extract as much time and money value out of it as they can. I mean, that's politics, right? There's a <laughs> there's always a, a faction of of whatever party that wants to protect sort of the the market incumbents or the incumbent interest, whatever it is. But I do think, you know, and I travel a lot and, and talk about about the question of big tech on the right. And I do think that the base of the Republican Party is no longer going to accept half measures. They are savvier, I think, than a lot of Republicans in Washington understand about this question. I think they see they see through. They're starting to get very tired anyway of sort of the you know rhetorical shaming that Republicans will do at hearings, but then have absolutely no follow through or no plan on how to actually in, you know put in structural reform. So I do think that this is a struggle for the right. You know, there's a lot of people who want to approach this question, but the right still remains unfocused about what to do specifically. And and that's, I think, the, the phase that they need to be in now. Now, a lot of the political folks I talk to on the Hill, there is a shift in the sense that they know that antitrust is now part of this equation. There's no backing away from it. And so it's just a matter of figuring out sort of how to best approach this question. And I will point out too, I, I think sometimes the left forgets that the right sort of doesn't have the intellectual depth as much on this question, right? We have Borkians, right? We have people that have been trained in one specific way of thinking and thinking in that specific way is incentivized. And so there hasn't been a lot of just intellectual dynamism on this question on the right for a very long time. So we are catching up, I think, a little bit in these areas. And that's taken some time, but hopefully it's it's pushing us in the right direction it, from my perspective. And how much, how much of the antitrust energy on the right is is coming from this this notion of censorship like this fear that big tech is is censoring censoring them or shadow banning them or not you know they, they're not they're getting booted off platforms or you know they're not getting enough likes on their posts which i worry and tell tell me if i'm wrong about this which i, I worry if that's too much of a driving impulse of this that when it gets time to a solution it's going to conflict with whatever's actually doable yeah, you know, that was obviously what drove a lot of the interest from the right in the first place, right? <laughs> it was this idea of of censorship, of, you know, 
conservatives being suppressed online. And for a long time, the retort was, well, that's conspiracy theory. But then I think that the Donald Trump presidency and sort of how social media handled news about Donald Trump handled stories about him, I think really fed into that idea that, no, there is an ideological speech control. Now, I think the savvy Republicans understand that that is a symptom of market power, right? That I think a lot of these speech concerns are actually downstream of of, of market control and that this is far more of a market of an economic question in a lot of ways than it is simply a speech question. So I think you know, you're starting to see Republicans, I think, wake up to that fact. And then also the question of, of competition and, and, and small businesses and innovators able being able to compete with these platforms. I think one of the most compelling hearings that the House Antitrust Subcommittee did during their investigation of big tech was with small competitors. Um, I think it was a field hearing in Colorado. And you, you saw these small competitors come forward and say, this is the reality of trying to compete with these guys. We are not on a level playing field here. That resonated with a lot of Republicans because, again, that idea of, you know, small business and competition and fair play in the market should be central and has been central in a lot of ways to the Republican philosophy. So speech concerns, I think, sparked a lot of the issue. But I think this, people who are trying to actually address this from a sa- in a savvy way understand that it's merely a symptom of market power. It's not the cause of all this, you know, of every problem they face. And, and Matt, you work with you know, both the left and the right on these these questions. How do you navigate this issue of kind of censorship grievance? Is it is it something that can be exploited to push the agenda forward? How do you grapple with that? Yeah, I mean, I'll talk about the confusion on the on the, on the Democratic side, since right, which there's a ton of that too. It's like they blame Facebook for they blame Facebook for Trump, and that's a significant amount of energy around kind of anti big tech. That's right. I mean, I I was you know, talking to a member who was interested in, been in, interested in antitrust for quite a while. And he said to me after January 6th, how do we have antitrust law and non-discriminatory regimes, but still allow these firms to, to ban Donald Trump? And so it's like, he was wrestling with the idea of, well, I want to censor, <laughs> but I don't, I, I, I want them to be fair, but also I want to censor. <laughs> and I think that's a real tension. I and mean, this guy's from Silicon Valley. So it's, it's not like a, <laughs> there are other things involved there, but you know, what you see with, with, uh, you have this like old tradition, which I think is kind of the democratic version of the libertarian tradition, which is this kind of very consumer focused, consumer oriented bias, right. To the ex- exclusion of other problems. And so there's a lot of people who are like, we need to focus on privacy, 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 privacy. And we need to make sure that, that there's transparency around how Facebook discloses whatever and uh, misinformation, disinformation. That's what you see in kind of the energy and commerce committee It's what you see in like the Senate commerce committee, you know, and it bleeds blurs into some good policy, like uh, children's tracking and, and privacy. But there are there's also this kind of deep desire going back to the 1970s and earlier to just set up large centralized administrative agencies. And they're like, oh, well, if misinformation is a problem, we'll just have a large centralized administrative agency to, to deal with it. I think that's actually what Frances Hagan, who's the whistleblower, that's one of her ideas. And some a bunch of Democrats jumped on it. We're like, oh, this is a really good idea because they see a problem. They want to like put a regulator in there. I don't really think about competition. But on the other side, you have a whole set of Democrats um, from the, who are kind of loosely aligned with the faction that I'm a, a part of, of uh, the antitrust debates. And this is not ideological. This is not doesn't break down on normal ideological lines. We see it the way that I think Rachel described, which is that a lot of the problems are disinformation and censorship and various other social polarization are upstream from market power and market structure questions. And if you get the market structure right, then a lot of these things kind of go away. So to put it in a different, slightly different way, you know, Alex Jones is not somebody that we particularly like. And, but, you know, you've always had people who stand on the corner and scream crazy things, or even people who are on media and say things that are crazy. The problem is that Alex Jones was recommended by YouTube's algorithms owned by Google 15 billion times, right? That is a, it's a difference between thinking about misinformation and disinformation saying that person shouldn't speak and thinking about a business model that creates a kind of algorithmic amplification because of a, a specific way that we regulate data and allow advertising in a specific regulatory model. That's actually another thing that the whistleblower was talking about is algorithmic amplification. She had some good ideas and bad ideas, but it's like that question of, you know, how do you get the market structure right? 
versus how can we put together a centralized agency to fix these social problems is a real point of tension on the Democratic side. So if algorithmic amplification you know, is, the, is a major problem, how does competition solve that? Because is there a concern that the worst kind of algorithmic amplification will win a free market battle? Yeah. So, okay. So competition policy is never just about uh, breaking things up. It, sometimes you don't break things up, right? Um, it, it's about setting clear market structure, rules for market structure that create social benefits. And competition, if you can have it, often is a really important part of that. It's not the only part of it. So it's kind of like you can have multiple car companies producing cars, but you also need seatbelts, right? And you need stop signs. You need rules of the road. You also need competition. But to get to why competition in this area might be useful, you know, when, when Facebook was originally competing with MySpace, they didn't compete with price because both products were free. They competed by differentiating their product around privacy and safety. So Facebook would say, you don't want to go over there to MySpace. It's a bunch of crazy people and scammers. Come over here to Facebook. We will keep your, your data safe. We'll even let you vote in your privacy policy. Yet they did that in 20, 2007. And we'll only show your data to your friends. And it was very much about safety and privacy and not surveilling you. We'll never use cookies. That was another thing they said. And then when they killed all their competition or bought their competition, um, they bought Instagram and WhatsApp by 2014, they started surveilling aggressively because people couldn't really leave. So if you did see Facebook broken up and you saw more competition in the space, you would see product differentiation. So, so you would have firms saying, well, you know, we'll offer you this social networking product, but it's a private. Uh, we have a, a safer or more private product, or we'll offer you this messenger product that's safer and more private. Like that was what WhatsApp was. And so you can see like through that product differentiation, you know, just like in a competitive market, prices often go down. Um, you would see quality go up because these institutions would have to fight over customers. But to make that also, you know, to, to kind of deal with the social problems, you need to go beyond just having more competitors. You also need to put clear rules of the road in there. And that would be things like preventing conflicts of interest by addressing the problem of algorithms and, and surveillance advertising. I think we should just ban surveillance advertising straightforward. And, you know, there's probably a, a few other things that you would have to do to get back to a system where we're kind of human scale systems, but both competition and setting clear rules of the road that are content neutral would be the way to get us back to a situation where one guy isn't like controlling social discourse in America and all over the world. And R Rachel, what about you? Uh, how does more competition solve that problem? Do you mostly agree with Stoller? Anything you would amend there? So I think something Matt touched on briefly is actually a really important point, which is the idea that antitrust is, I think, very important to solving the issues around big tech, but it's not a complete panacea. And, you know, I do think that you know, if you infuse market forces into the tech space, you can actually compete a lot of these concerns away, you know, from speech, privacy, all these things. But you are still dealing with structural incentives that are largely lawless. He mentioned, I think, you know, advertising surveillance and, and surveillance capitalism and things like that. We have a largely sort of lawless environment around that, you know, same with data brokerage and, and what firms can collect and what they do with it and how much, you know, user control – all policy around that really has to be contemplated, I think, to actually address some of these questions. And then I think on the algorithmic side, you also have the, the legal question of, you know, you have massive Section 230 protection for these companies. Well, does their algorithmic choices or do their algorith algorithmic choices, con you know, constitute sort of editorializing? You know, does the action that these firms take onto user content, so the fact checks and, you know, everything they do to user content, should that be outside of Section 230? So I think antitrust has to go hand in hand with, I think, certain sort of structural policy changes if you're looking at a full, comprehensive view of how we take on this problem. But I do think that, for me, antitrust is one of the cleanest solutions at the outset of addressing, you know, the market concentration that has prevented the marketplace from really solving a lot of these problems, you know, in the first place. And what's the big tech pushback looking like. And there was this amazing moment where, I don't know if you saw this, but yesterday, Amy Klobuchar was complaining that tech companies have, as she said, they've literally hired so many people in this town to, to, you know, to push their big tech agenda. There are lobbyists around every single corner of this building that have been hired by the tech industry. We have and then a couple hours later, it's reported that her own 
her her own senior staff is going to work for (laughs) Apple as their top as a top lobbyist, which was probably a top of her mind as as she was making that comment. Now, Amy Klobuchar is known to have extremely high turnover, but that doesn't mean that all the staff have to go work for Apple. So, what what is your competition like on the other side? I mean. Is like David and Goliath too extreme of an example? <laughs> like, <laughs> it's, you know, I cannot explain this any better, I think, than by talking about the 2020 lobbying numbers, because I just think this makes it so plain. You know, in 2020, Facebook and Amazon spent more money lobbying the government than Northrop Grumman, Lockheed Martin, Boeing, and Raytheon. I mean, they spent more money than the defense industrial complex to try wow. and purchase the rules that govern them. And I think that's, you know, in addition to, the ability they have to fund a lot of, you know, public policy institutions to sort of turn, you know, their big tech talking points into like, you know, free market pablum. That's a very powerful element. So not only are they, you know, sending all their lobbyists to the Hill, they're creating this echo chamber from, you know, the policy space of, you know, this is what you have to do if you're conservative, this is what you have to do. And it's a very powerful force and it's worked for them. I mean, for the past 15, 20 years, it has worked for them. I think right now you're seeing their approach run up against the reality, which is, you know, people just aren't buying it anymore. And I think you're seeing a lot of the, well, not maybe not a lot of the right, but some of us on the right saying, you know, I think we've, we really just haven't thought about this correctly. You know, we're supposed to want to protect the free market and that's what antitrust does. Why are, you know, why shouldn't we have antitrust enforcement against these firms? But never underestimate the power of big tech in these debates. You know, they, they have money, they have time and they have countless resources. And that's why, you know, if you remember TikTok, right, when they went around hiring up some of the very top staff from both Republicans and Democrats across the, you know, Congress mm-hmm. from the House and the Senate, you know, they pay a lot of money. And I guess some staff had no compunction about basically working for the Chinese government. So they are still very powerful in Washington. And what does your side look like? Like how big of a room would you guys need? Um, what, like thinkers like me or just mm-hmm. the, the right or? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, like, like people in Washington who are actively like engaged in, in fighting back against big tech. I think it probably started with like three people. <laughs> and now, you know, I'd like to think, you know, we're bringing more people around every day, but I think it's pretty small still, unfortunately, but we're growing. I have to be in optimistic. It, in its own right, it's a, it's a fascinating case study in effectiveness in Washington because it's there, there is a, a ton of anger about, you know, antitrust around the country, but it has ne- it's never really organized into like a march on Washington or anything. Yet, you guys have made, you know, major inroads to the extent that, you know, Jonathan Cantor is on his way to being confirmed in the Senate, probably with a pretty strong bipartisan vote. Why do you think you have been able to compete so well against an industry that spent more than the military industrial complex? Yeah, as as much as I'd love to to give, you know, my little band a ton of credit here. I mean, big tech has has really helped make the case for us. That's what's also really amazing about this moment is how self-inflicted it is. I mean, these companies are so arrogant. They're so arrogant. You know, they they think that they can just even look at sort of how they ban news, right? The, the Hunter Biden story was in mm-hmm. the banning that Twitter did and followed by Facebook. That was a real rallying moment, I think, for the right. And it could have been avoided. Right. It could have been avoided, but big tech. They could have just not done that. They could have just not done that. And instead they did. And, you know, in their arrogance, they defended it. And that really galvanized, I think, a lot of people. And they could have not had a Democratic activist make the statement. Right. Right. The former Facebook employee who, yeah, who, who was working for a former leading Democrat. And that galvanized the right, and it brought a lot of people who who weren't necessarily paying attention or or on my side to this. They brought a lot of them around. So every time they just do something, it's like they step on a rake a little bit because they're just so out of touch, I think, with where this moment is. And they do something like that, and it makes my job a lot easier because I don't have to argue as, as forcefully for this because big tech's making the argument for me. Now, I've also spent a lot of time appealing to traditional conservative philosophy, which I think very much encompasses robust antitrust enforcement. I've been pushing back against the swan song of neoliberalism on the right for a while. And I think this is one of the areas where I'm pushing the right to sort of reclaim its its traditions. But I got to hand it to big tech, you know, thanks, guys, make, <laughs> make my life a little easier. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Matt, thank you for joining me. 
Thanks for having me. That was Rachel Bovard and Matt Stoller, and that's our show. Deconstructed is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Our producer is Zach Young. Laura Flynn is our supervising producer. The show was mixed by Brian Pugh. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Betsy Reed is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. And I'm Ryan Grimm, D.C. Bureau Chief of The Intercept. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com slash give. Your donation, no matter what the amount, makes a real difference. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. And please do leave us a rating or review. It helps people find the show. If you want to give us feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks so much. See you next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.